Live from Lane County, Oregon, it's the Bose Nose Show with your host, West Lane County Commissioner Jay Bosevich. And now, here's Jay. And good afternoon from beautiful downtown Elmira, Oregon. And it's another gorgeous summer afternoon here in the Pacific Northwest. You know, just a bright blue sky, not a cloud in it. Mid-80s, maybe. Low-80s, I guess. What are we, 30% humidity? Take that, you know, Houston and, and uh, Atlanta, Atlanta and all you folks over there. Uh, Oh gosh, I'm so glad I moved out out here. So it's been a busy week or so since our last show for me. Uh, I spent the last two days, or I should say, since I went over on Sunday because uh, they started at seven in the morning on Monday, to the um, Oregon Coast Economic Summit, and they had it at the Mill Casino there in North Bend. Uh, you know which is not Bend, as I confused a friend of mine when I told him I was going to North Bend. Uh, no, this is the one on the coast. <laughs> but, you know, it was a really interesting two days worth of meetings, and, man, it was jam-packed. I mean, they didn't even give you lunch off. You basically um, did, you know, they took tables, taking, took tables up to the buffet one at a time while the speakers were still going. So, you know, it was... Uh, no let up it went you know from seven in the morning on monday until eight o'clock at night um that day and got going again at seven the next day all the way through to five but it's pretty interesting a lot of panels couldn't go to them all because there were some concurrent sex sessions uh we actually had an association of oregon counties meeting for a couple hours in the middle of, of monday so i missed a few sessions then but if I could kind of boil it down into two major issues um, that came up fairly consistently is the first issue that kind of kept underlying several things is the complete loss of the timber industry and federal land management rules just hammering the coastal economies and how that has removed the middle class basically from from the Oregon coast. Uh, those were those middle class family wage jobs that you know most people think of. You could actually, you know, raise a family with one worker in the family. The other thing that came up consistently is the lack of affordable housing that workers that currently can get a job on the coast can afford because majority of the coastal economies surrounding tourism and leisure. I, they had a panel of economists there, and I think one of the economists made the statement that, 20, you know, that one fourth of the economy is, is leisure and hospitality. Uh, and it's low wage. Unfortunately, the um, coast is really made up of a lot of high cost housing because Folks are retiring there from other areas of the country, and they're also traveling there to vacation. And anytime you got a place that's beautiful enough to attract that kind of travel and leisure, um, it drives up the price of real estate as people want to buy you know, their, their second home there, and they want to have a vacation rental there, and things are being rented by the night or the week instead of by the month. And there's no one-year leases and all that. So it, it makes the cost of housing just outrageous on the coast. And therefore, if you're um, the Seven Devils uh, Brewery in Coos Bay there, and you're trying to find um, workers that are, can afford to work as, as servers or, um, you know, in the, you know uh, in the actual brewing process, they can't afford the housing around there. It gets really tough. So one of the major constraints that was identified by just about every panel in some format or another, that issue of, of affordable housing in the, uh, 
in a coastal vacation area setting um, was a fairly consistent message. But, you know, it was interesting. The first speaker of the day, after Arnie Roblin, who uh, this was hosted by the uh, Oregon Legislature's Coastal Caucus, uh, and Senator Arnie Roblin uh, originated this whole summit five years ago. This was the fifth one. After he made his first introductions, he introduced Brenda Mead, who is the chair of the Coquill, 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 sorry, I I'm, always start pronounce that wrong, Coquill tribe. Uh, and they're the ones that basically built the mill casino there. Um, and she spoke uh, quite a bit. And she spoke very passionately about trying to get a bill through Congress that would take the force that the Coquille tribe finally managed to get transferred over to them as, as their native land and remove it from the Northwest Forest Plan. Even though it, it, it's sovereign territory now of the tribe, under the transfer, they're having to adhere to the Northwest Forest Plan and they can't cut any trees on the damn thing. And she basically went on to call the BLM uh, ONC's uh, resource management plan that they just uh, put in place a lose-lose proposition, and those are her direct, a direct quote from her. Um, this is the chair of the Coquille tribe that's speaking this way, and the coastal tribes are not known for being environmentally unsensitive and thinking about long-term sustainability of their resources. Even they think the federal government is off its rocker when it comes to, to forest management. Um, and that was a, a, a repeated theme by several speakers throughout, throughout the, the two days there. Um, kind of off the subject of, of economic development in a tangential way, they did have a panel of the, the legislators, most of the legislators that are on the super committee that's looking at transportation funding in Oregon and trying to come up with a, a new transportation package and plan. Uh, that was kind of interesting to listen to for, for several reasons. But uh, it's uh, the big thing that's going to that's going to really kind of make or break whether that transportation plan moves ahead is how they choose to fund it and trying to find a way that's acceptable to everybody that everybody's got skin in the game and that's what i heard from those folks most often so but it was interesting it does tie to the economic development in some ways because one of the things we heard from many of the communities was how difficult it was to get goods to and from the coast in several ways and how uh, the threat of the subduction cascadia subduction zone earthquake um, will threaten the whole infrastructure of transportation on the coast. You know, we, you know as uh, one friend of mine, David Brock Smith, who's a current county commissioner down in Curry County, uh, mentioned that it doesn't even take an earthquake to take Highway 101 out uh, of service for any length of time. It just takes a good rainstorm. So uh, it, it's it's pretty interesting, uh, you know, just listening to the whole interaction of all these issues coming together. And, and really, it's about how difficult it is for rural communities to be prosperous now today in, in Oregon and even in, in the Western United States with the ownership of federal lands and just that kind of urban-rural divide where policies are being made that, that really benefit large metropolises and leave the rural folks out in the cold. Uh, it was also interesting because we did have that association of Oregon counties meeting down there concurrent. There were a lot of county commission, my fellow county commissioners from the dry side of, of Oregon there, from Eastern Oregon, and they were basically nodding their heads the whole time, going, "Yeah, this is the same issues we're having in Hermiston or, um, you know, out there in, in Baker City or, you know, Lakeview." Klamath Falls, it's all about trying to get, um, you know, good infrastructure to these towns 
to get the resources that surround them to be available for economic use of the people and not just kind of locked up forever and put away. So it, it's, it's a pretty interesting um, topic to talk about economic development for rural communities. Uh, the coast has some particularly interesting uh, challenges because uh, it does have that mix of being a tourist uh, attraction and making the property values so high. But it also, you know, lost its historic um, economic driver, which was the timber industry. And what's interesting is, you know, that resource management plan um, was approved last week, and now there's already three lawsuits that have been filed against it that I know about. Uh, the, uh, the environmental community filed a lawsuit. The, um, the a forest industry group filed a lawsuit, and the counties filed a lawsuit. In fact, the um, ONC Counties Association filed their lawsuit in the District of Columbia last Thursday, I think within uh, 48 hours of them officially adopting the plan. Uh, so nobody's happy about it because it's being, um, it's going to be litigated from both sides at this point. So um, it'll be interesting to watch how those lawsuits go, but you know, lawsuits take years. We sued about the Northwest Forest Plan and uh, won eventually, the ONC counties did. And that was what, um, there was a, a kind of famous plan that came out that nobody liked out here called the Western Oregon Plan Revision, which got to be nicknamed, uh, unfortunately, by its initials as the Whopper. Uh, and that was actually to resolve the lawsuit that we beat the federal government on and uh, the Obama administration abruptly withdrew the, the Western Oregon plan revision, even though it had been through 200 public meetings and all sorts of public comment, uh, and then started over again on this resource management plan and obviously um, ignored why they had to do the Western Oregon plan revision in the first place and ignored the whole 1937 um, ONC Act. So we're back in court again with the federal government as the counties basically saying you can't develop a plan that ignores the law that set aside those that those lands on behalf of the counties in the first place. So be interesting, but it's going to be years before that gets resolved. And it'll be it'll be a long time before uh, we get to the point of having you know any real uh, rebound on our our timber jobs sounds like you got some critics out there yeah yeah i had to swing the door closed for a second that's a, the the you know i am i am broadcasting from beautiful downtown elmira but it also means i've got my four standard poodles that will sometimes uh chime in on the program and uh and let their presence be known um I don't know if you heard heard my uh, youngest one come in here and start panting at me a few minutes ago. Uh, it wasn't me breathing heavily. It was uh, it was Piper the poodle. Um, <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I get critics. I, they, 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 the one thing I can tell you is I'll probably never have this show go much, too much past a, an hour as long if, as long as I start at four o'clock because they're used to being fed at five. And they will let me know when the show should be over. So, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, was an interesting couple days down there. Um, I also then got the chance today to go down to Florence and speak to the Kiwanis Club down there and talk about trash and and county's budget and PERS and a few other things. So, it's a free for all day you know you control the conversation so give us a call here at um 646 then and why am i not seeing the darn phone number in front of me i have lost the phone number six four oh so six there it is never mind seven two one nine eight eight seven i'm having one of those days the dogs threw me off six four six seven two one nine eight eight seven uh and just press one, and that lets Robin, the, the voice from beyond here, um, 
know that you want to get in on the queue and get in on the conversation. Uh, don't be bashful. Uh, I don't bite. And I'll give you your, your fair shake to get your, your opinion in and, and ask you questions, and I'll do my best to answer them. And if I don't know the answer, I'll try my best to look it up and get back to you about it, uh, especially if you'll leave me some contact info or, or contact me on Facebook. One of the best ways to get in touch with us also here is by email at talk at krbnradio.net because you don't have to do it during our live show. You can only really call in and talk to me during the live show. But you can email us anytime and uh, ask a question or suggest a topic. It's a pretty easy thing to do. And again, that's uh, to get in on the, the conversation immediately, though, you just got to dial 646-721-9887. So, you know, down in the, the, the Florence area there, speaking to, to Kiwanis folks, they were asking about this whole thing with the trash and, and uh, the consultant's uh, report that came up, and I kind of gave them our, our trash system 101 and how it's basically self-funded um, by our, our tipping fees that we charge folks that either come to the transfer stations or the commercial haulers when they bring a truckload, and that's what funds the whole system. But as part of that funding and our permitting for the landfill, we have to keep a, an amount reserved to close the landfill at any time because uh, ever since Love Canal and, and some other um, landfill issues where there, there wasn't closure money available, uh, permitting a landfill has gotten a lot more difficult. And in addition to that, um, as part of that permitting, we can only have it's not like you have one humongous landfill that you just keep adding to. You build it in what they call cells. So, you know, you have a certain amount of volume that you could put into a single cell and then you have to cap it off and open a new cell. And we have to be ready to start putting trash in the new cell on the day we finish filling up the old cell, which means we have to have a fair amount of money about a year ahead of time to build that new cell. And Lane County was running about a million and a half a year annually in short of putting away enough money to have that new cell ready. And uh, staff, you know, proposed that we just kind of do a double digit rate increase and that would make up the difference. And the board kind of was a little reluctant to do that because, you know, that just gets passed directly through. And uh, we, uh, we wanted uh, to try and maybe do something a little less onerous, so we kind of did about half the rate increase, and we asked staff to go back and look for efficiencies to make up the other half. And they brought in an outside consultant, which is always a good thing because they, they bring in knowledge from other systems and can look at, you know, what's everybody else doing, what's the state of the art, what's what's the average level of service that people are used to across the country, um, are you going above average in some things? Are you below average in others? And uh, we paid about $70,000 for that study. And they proposed about $1.8 million in savings to us. It was actually, they came up with more savings than, than we needed. And over $500,000, a half million dollars of annual savings they came up with was merely doing things better at the current landfill things that most people will never see or, or even register when they take their trash out to the curb. So, you know, they paid, they made up for the 70,000 we spent on them in just those recommendations. And in, in a single year, yet it's a repetitive cost savings for us that we're gonna be able to keep year over year. So we kind of closed a third of the gap just in doing some things differently out at Short Mountain Landfill and then they proposed a couple of things that became kind of controversial. Uh, one was to close eight of our rural transfer stations. Uh, and that was partly because we are the most um, convenient uh, trash system in the entire state. And in all 36 counties, we rank number one in having the shortest distance of, for our citizens overall to get to a transfer station. The average distance was by far the shortest of any county. 
And even if we close the eight transfer stations and people have to haul further, and I'm sure you might have seen letters the editor talking about having to haul 20 miles instead of two and all that stuff, um, we'll still have the third best system for the customer as far as distance to a transfer station goes in the whole state out of the 36 counties. So there'll be 33 other counties that'll still have longer drive times. So it's, uh, and, and part of that's because you get a county that, that's relatively small in land area and you only have one transfer site, they, it's hard for us to beat a county like that, you know, a, a Benton County perhaps. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're looking at those things. We haven't made any decisions. All we've done is had the consultant do his work. We've actually went out in the community and had four public meetings to take comments. We've gotten massive amount of email comments and voicemails and everything else. And we held our first meeting about it last week at the board, and we've got our second follow-up meeting next Wednesday at 9 o'clock um, down there at the county office building. We'll actually be in our, our uh, board of commissioners conference room that day because Harris Hall is having some work done to it to improve the audio system. But we'll actually take public comments at the beginning of that meeting at nine in the morning. But it, it looks to me like we're probably gonna um, definitely do the first part of, of the consultant's recommendations and make the changes at Short Mountain. Um, I don't know if we'll close the transfer stations. I think we'll probably deal with that with by making up the cost and increasing the fees at transfer stations. And I'm not sure we're going to actually force haulers to go to Short Mountain or not yet. So we'll see where we end up with that. It's probably going to be a combination of the consultant's recommendations for efficiencies and some increases in fees. No matter what, we still had to come up with another million and a half dollars somehow or another. So. The folks down there were uh, kind of uh, wondering about trash. And, uh, you know, so if you want to call in about trash, we can talk trash. I can, you know, I can always pull up the consultant's study and we can talk in detail about it. But the number here is 646-721-9887. And, you know, I talked about the the economic summit a little bit and the cost of housing and I forgot to mention one thing and that was there was a proposal from some of the folks in Lincoln County of an idea of how to fix this and it's going to take almost a sea change in Oregon land use law you know because one of the issues that we have is there's not a lot of buildable land on the coast you know, we've got this huge problem with, with affordable housing, yet we now have thoroughly identified the seduction zone earthquake and, and the resulting tsunamis. So we've, we've mapped on the, almost the entire coast what that tsunami inundation zone is. And of course, if you're Joe Banker, are you loaning money to somebody to build an apartment building inside the tsunami inundation zone for, um, workforce style housing, not, not for, you know, resort housing? Probably not. Um, the second thing that's really restricting a lot of land in, on the coast is the new uh, flood insurance uh, rules that came out from FEMA uh, based on that lawsuit and the biological opinion of the National Marine Fisheries folks that basically said, you know, any, any use within the floodplain and, and, and close to the floodway is going to probably impact salmon and cause a taking and violate the Endangered Species Act. So you, FEMA, have to come up with some new rules that protects the floodplains even better, which resulted in having a 170-foot setback from any floodways and, and basically prohibiting all, almost all new development in a floodplain. And if you look at the coast in a town like Tillamook or, or even... Um, Gardner and all that, you're basically either in the tsunami zone, floodplain, and that's about it. And then behind you, as you go up the hills and you get out of the tsunami zone in the floodplain, it's if it's not owned by the Forest Service, it's zoned for resource of some kind. It's either farm or forest land. And the state's 
land use laws make it very difficult for a city like Lincoln City or Florence to expand their urban growth boundaries into resource lands. In fact, um, the city of Coburg just had their uh, UGB expansion kicked out by the state because um, it was actually using some resource land instead of using what they call impacted land. So what it might take, and the folks are proposing there in, Link, in Lincoln City and, and um, Lincoln County, is a rule that allows coastal communities to actually impact those resource land if they're hemmed in by floodplain and, and tsunami zone and all that, specifically for uh, either needed housing or economic development lands. Because it's not, you know, for some of these folks, they'd like to get some manufacturing jobs on the coast and some higher paying jobs. But who's going to invest in a manufacturing plant in the tsunami zone? So um, trying to get some, quote, dry land into their city's urban growth boundaries is going to probably take a change in our land use laws, which means state legislation. And that's kind of touching one of the third rails of Salem politics when you start talking about monkeying around with Senate Bill 100. Um, you know, we're the only state in the nation that's gone to statewide land use planning, and it has its advantages, but it has its disadvantages. And, and part of the disadvantages is not taking into account that one particular locality might be pretty far different from another locality and having a statewide set of rules kind of peanut butters them all into one size fits all and really this whole uh, protection of some of these uh, resource lands close to the coast you know i don't know what the, the rule might be within 10 miles of, of the pacific ocean that they, you have the ability to take resource lands into a city's ugb but um Something needs to change to get them the, the, the lands to actually develop on that would be available for um, workforce housing or even um, a new manufacturing plant or whatever the improvement is that will actually employ people and allow people that are being employed by some of these lower wage industries like, like uh, restaurants and hotels um, to you know, find a place they can actually live. So that was, you know, one of the proposals that came out of there. Um, you know, of course, there's the usual, you know, folks from housing and urban development um, and you know, some of the low-income housing um, agencies that, you know, would like to see more use of, say, uh, low-income housing tax credits to build uh, developments on the coast and all that. But it's really difficult to get those um Cited on the coast and and done done on the coast, so um, having more buildable land will bring down the cost of the, the underlying land because you know there are people that are buying um, little tiny manufactured homes in the Sea to Beach area on a lot that has a, a a ocean view, and tearing them down and rebuilding you know million dollar homes because of how valuable the land is underneath that manufactured home and they're buying them for you know little little tiny um you know six or seven eight thousand square foot lot you know for a couple hundred thousand dollars um because they have have so much um value as a as a view lot so unless there's more land that that quote isn't view lots and isn't um you know, right on the beach and all that stuff, uh, you're not going to get the underlying land low enough cost to be able to build a low-income um, sort of housing. So that's uh, that's the one proposal I actually heard that where somebody had a solution, not just presented a problem. Um, and I thought it was pretty interesting, um, you know, pretty interesting uh, solution. And it's going to be Pretty interesting to see if Salem will will take hold of that. I know I'll probably be in Salem a lot this next session, uh, lobbying on behalf of the county and also uh, for the ONC counties, uh, and also the one organization that I think is going to be looking at that particular change is the Oregon Coastal Zone Management Association, 
which includes um, all the cities and counties and ports along the entire coastline. Uh, that's where I initially heard of that proposal to change the uh, land use laws along the coast to be a bit more flexible. Now, if we can get them to change to get uh, Eugene to actually expand their urban growth boundary, the cost of housing here in Eugene might go down also. But we'll see if that happens. So, you know, it was it was an interesting conference. There were a couple other. Um, a couple other interesting speakers that, that were there. We had a brief conversation with a guy by the name of Kurt McKenzie, who was an Idaho state senator. And the reason he showed up is he's part of part of a Pacific Northwest um, uh, economic um, group. And, you know, Idaho, Washington, and Oregon are all part of this 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 group and he's was was the current chair so he came and what's interesting is the rural economic development issues that he heard because he was spoke on the second day that he heard on the first day weren't a whole lot different than what he has to deal with in idaho as a western state with a large amount of federal ownership the one issue that they're concerned about um, might be a little bit different um, from from the coast is they're they're dealing with a lot of rail safety issues, more concerned about oil trains, et cetera, and um, they also uh, are dealing with um, the whole Columbia River Treaty between uh, the U.S. and Canada and how that impacts uh, the state of or state of Idaho, um, also in fact the state of Oregon and Washington. But pretty interesting stuff. Uh, Senator Wyden was probably one of the first speakers of the, the conference, and he also addressed uh, Canada a little bit um, in talking about the whole softwood um, treaty and trying to get that uh, the dumping of softwood that Canada has been doing changed. So, um, you know, my uh, my producer Robin has a guest in her studio on her end with her uh, bill. And we were having a brief conversation beforehand. I told him, you know, talk to me on the air, Bill, because you have some interesting, uh, interesting comments to make. And I, I, if if you're ready on that end, Bill, jump on in here. What what do you want to ask about? I got a question on the two-day uh, economic event on the coast. Everybody's discussed about what's going on. Was any discussion about how to fix the problem without going to forming other committees? Um, you know, I think there is a, um, a considerable amount of discussion about what's working also. Um, and, and some of the things, you know, particularly, you know, the, the, the transportation um, conversation was, was pretty important because that's about you know, fixing some of our infrastructure. But one of the things that they've done in, on the coast is they got a dredge there that the ports are sharing now, the small ports. And that's been a, a really great example of, of coming up with something pretty innovative. And it's being shared with the southern coast right now because there's really more ports than one dredge can actually do small port wise. Mm -hmm. But the folks up on the north end of the coast, the ports up there, were willing to kind of say, we'll wait in line and try and see if we can get the funding for a second dredge uh, put together uh, for the north coast. Uh, so they've got this dredge that's now moving from small port to small port, doing channel improvements and all. And that's been a real help. And particularly, um, I think it was uh, Port Orford and Gold Beach down there were having real Bad problems uh, with with siltation in their port and trying to keep it open. Uh, in fact, I think it might have been Port Orford did a video of them going out at low tide with wheelbarrows and trying to shovel some of the marina out. <laughs> so, uh, is that why the uh, a couple weekends ago I was in Florence and I I saw an Army Corps of Engineers uh, ship either they're doing restricted maneuvering in the uh, outlet or the inlet 
were they just mapping it out for the uh, dredging process, or were they just dredging it? No, they were actually dredging it. That 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 is the dredge. It actually worked its way to Florence and was doing some of the channel work there. So, and that's that's the part of the problem was that the Congress cut a lot of the funding streams that came to ports for dredging, and they basically cut the small port dredging funds. So um, that was the 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 solution was to get this this dredge that basically is shared by these ports. Right. And and you know by sharing the dredge it's more affordable. Got some congressional help in actually getting it there, but now it's it's really about just the cost of operation and maintenance. Um, while I was there, there was a clamshell dredge working right off the the mill casino. Um, so it, the core dredge, yeah, there's there's a couple dredges, but it, there's one specifically now assigned to the small ports on the south coast. And those ports are real important to the economy of the coast. What's interesting is the one industry that seems to be doing well resource-wise is the fishing industry is still doing um, a lot of economic um, impact to the coast. Uh, and I, I didn't have, I didn't get a chance to get all the numbers written down because the guy was speaking a little too fast. Um, but it was, I think the, the total impact along the coast is like 118 million a year for the fishing industry you know crabs and oyster you know generally seafood industry crabs oyster salmon the whole whole bit there um and 30 years 30 or 50 years ago they had a value for it and it's actually beat the inflation it's actually grown faster than inflation the economic impact cool so that, that that's the you know the, the success story on the coast is how well they've been able to manage the, the fisheries in a sustainable way, and then expand the value and add value to it. You know whether it's packaging smoked salmon, you know, and that sells for outrageous amounts on the east coast, <laughs> or, or you know smoking oysters or whatever it is they they do to, to add value to some of this the seafood. Um, but it's actually been one of the, the success stories down there is, and trying to build on that, that, that seafood industry and protect it. And one of the things that's come up recently is EPA's decided to start focusing in DEQ on um, effluent from uh, seafood packaging plants, yeah. some, of which, some of which have been there for 50 years, and suddenly they're trying to, to make them clean up, you know, change their processes and all that stuff and they haven't been very um cooperative so some of the legislators have sort of stepped into that process and have you know called a timeout on a couple occasions and 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 intervened and tried to get a, a better uh resolution to that you know we don't want to have them you know foul the water and have it not sustain you know what what's supporting the, the fishery there but it's still also uh got to be a little bit reasonable sometimes and not trying to, to uh, ask for too much improvement too fast because it's beyond the economic capacity of, a, of one particular company. Yeah, I was just going to say maybe the EPA is smoking oysters and that's part of the problem. <laughs> <laughs> They're smoking something. Uh, well, speaking of, speaking of fisheries and not to get off on a, on a tangent, uh, years ago I used to work in Charleston Fishery now that fishery, mm, and you're talking about the affluent in that and all the the, the uh, waste out of it. Ain't there special ain't there special mandates to uh, actually dispose of that fish waste instead of just dumping it? Or they yeah, have to truck it out, or they got special ponds? Yeah, for the most part, they they're, they're starting to get there, but you know some of those facilities have been operating since. Um, you know, way before our time. Yes. And and they used to, you know, used to be that, you know, we get the big ocean, you know, just dump it. <laughs> and it's not as big as people think it is. Yeah, yeah. So some of that's changing and they're not doing as much of it. And of course, the value of some of that waste has gotten higher too, as, as some can be ground into meal and used as fertilizer or, you know, quote, organic fertilizer. Um, 
it's actually gaining some value. The waste stream has some value to it. Um, uh, growing garden. Yeah. I, I know I've bought oyster shell, crushed oyster shell to mix in my feed for my my ducks when they uh, sometimes they start get, getting a little bit of a thin shell on their eggs and all that stuff. So, you know, it even shows up in, in the local farm store here. <laughs> so, it's uh, it, it's you know so they you know they talked about that you know one of the you know the the most fun panels down there was the the last panel of the day on on Tuesday, and it was a group of microbrewers that they brought together. That's gaining a lot of popularity in this state. Oh yeah, yeah, and and the state's become well known for it, Is and. That- they're they're really doing well. These these guys that get step into it to the point where they're 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 having the trouble with finding workers. Um, but you know that um, they had uh, everything from Seven Devils out out of Coos Bay, and and uh, they had a couple other breweries. They even brought uh, uh, Nikos um, from Ninkasi over um, to talk about. Uh, Ninkasi, who's you know much larger than some of the other ones, but you know they they had their issue. Remember when for a short while they weren't going to allow spent um, grain from breweries to be fed to cattle. Right. Had to get that. Speaking of EPA smoking something, geez. <laughs> well, I think that was F, that was the Food and Drug Administration that pulled that one. USDA Food and Drug Administration that decided for some reason it wasn't sanitary enough feed for for our, our livestock that we were eventually going to eat to eat spent grain from a from a brewery you know <laughs> and anyone that's ever been in a brewery understands how cleanliness is next to godliness because if you get any you know contaminants into the brew process it can ruin an entire batch yes it's my you know, those guys are like freaked about clean yeah, so so some some grain that got used in a brew process is not exactly what I would call dirty. <laughs> Reusable. Yeah, yeah. So you know they had an issue with that for a while, but but you know these these breweries are 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 doing great up and down the coast and all over Oregon, and that's you know just one of the you know the actual brewmasters and all that they're paying a wage that you know most people would probably consider to be um family wage uh in in the you know 20 bucks or so an hour um for those guys that are actually doing the brewing you know the the servers out front are making minimum wage plus tips uh but it's, you know, it's, a, it's not not that bad of an industry to be in jobs like that are jobs that- even if it's family wage, you still got to feel comfortable about it. And then and working like that, breweries, are, it's like home. You, it's like your home. You go in there, you go to work, and you feel comfortable about the job, you know. Yeah. Well, I, I have you know, a couple of friends of mine are the uh, uh, owners of Claim 52 here in Eugene. And it is like family when you go in there. I know, you know, they, they I know the folks that are there um, and, and the, the brewmaster uh, and you know, it's always you know very much a family atmosphere, and I'm you know, sure that going to work for those folks is like an enjoyable thing because you know the guy that's the brewmaster is, is he's a former surveyor. That's how I know him. Um, Good and uh, you know, because I came out of engineering and surveying before I was an idiot and got went into elected politics, uh, <laughs> and. Uh, but you know he's doing what he loves now, you know he's always loved brewing and now he's doing it for a living, you know and that's a lot of those guys get into that 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 brewing industry and it's it's as big and and growing and and bringing in creating wealth is the, the greatest thing about it and that's that's what's missing sometimes in in um, the tourism industry it's, it doesn't necessarily always create wealth it just kind of transfers wealth yes um, and uh, when you take, you know, separate raw materials, do something to it, and then it is more valuable, you've created wealth, you know, at, with that added value that, you know, that is much more powerful in an economy than trading wealth. 
Uh, it's one of the reasons why the timber industry was so important to Oregon because it created wealth. Uh, and the fishing industry is wealth creation because that's really what grows an economy is to create wealth, not just to circulate it. Right. You know, the healthcare industry is great, but it doesn't create wealth, it only circulates wealth. You know, the tourism industry is great, but it doesn't truly create wealth, it circulates wealth. So it's, it's those, those places where you take raw materials and, you know, material A, material B put them together, do something to them, and now it's whatever product C, and it's worth a lot more than what material A and material B cost in the first place. That's really what makes an economy grow. And those brew houses are doing that for us um, to a certain extent, and uh, the fisheries down on the coast are doing that to a certain extent, but they're looking for other industries too, and and one of which is the... uh, um, high-tech industry to some degree because the coast is fortunate in some ways of having a pretty good broadband availability in some areas. Uh, Florence actually has one of the major fiber optic cables across the Pacific to the Asian countries lands in Florence on the coast there. And then they have a major cable that runs north-south to distribute that data up and down the coast and and connect across the mountains and all that stuff. And taking advantage of some of that um, high-speed data network on the coast might be where the next um, growth industry is there. In fact, uh, there was a worker at the uh, casino down there that came up with an idea for an app, and he's got a startup company now that he's working through the Oregon Rain uh, program and and trying to to get a a new startup tech company that is growing in Florence from one one particular person's bright idea <laughs> and that that's you know one of the places we can get some pretty high paying jobs um, where we're adding value um, and creating wealth is might be in the tech industry on the coast but of course we got to have places for those folks to live and, and places for them to actually house their businesses. And, you know, that's really what came up quite often in that coastal caucus was finding those places. Um, is so that, is that coastal caucus also um, going to be talk about like uh, small towns that are isolated in the, in the inland part of Oregon too? the ideas from here, from the coast actually, Will they move to, like, say, Drain or their smaller isolated towns? Will that information be used? Um, I, I think so, because, you know, most of these coastal caucus members, um, they don't just represent a coastal, only the coast. If you, um, Arnie Roblin's district stretches almost into Veneta. Um, so he takes in, you know, some of these small communities like the Deadwoods and the, uh, the, the Mapletons. Um, you go down south, um, and the state reps district there actually stretches from the coast all the way uh, just about to K Falls. Uh, so that, um, and Jeff, Senator Jeff Cruz, who represents a good portion of the southern coast, also includes Drain <laughs> and, and, and some of those, those communities. So when these guys are looking for solutions, um, you know, it's specifically quote the Coastal Caucus because they all, the one thing that brings this group together is they all share the Oregon coast as part of their districts. Okay. But they also represent other areas. So I'm sure that, you know, if they see something that looks good and, and is, is working on the coast, they'll probably be bringing it inland to some of these smaller rural communities. And in particular, there really isn't any of this caucus that represents any part of Portland, Salem, or Eugene. Why? Just because of the way the districts are drawn. Oh, okay. So, you know, um, Senator Betsy Johnson, you know, she's got Tillamook and Clatsop County up there, um, but she doesn't have Portland. (laughs) So she's going to be interested in what works, you know, for, um, you know, Astoria, and she's also going to be interested in, in what works further inland too. Um, but they're all rural, basically rural representatives and senators uh, to the state legislature, and they really, 
you know, they're looking for what works in rural Oregon in a lot of ways. Um, you know, even though there's probably many more Democrats than, than Republicans in that caucus, I, I would think that the Democrats involved um, tend to be more of the kind that are that are more concerned about economics and some and some rural issues. I mean, Betsy Johnson's famous for being very independent of her con, of her of her caucus, and and quite often voting against her caucus um, on several things. In fact, one of the interesting things she brought up uh, in some of her comments when she had a chance was this whole um, idea where there's several uh, ballot initiatives coming up that want to redistribute lottery money. And the one she jumped on the worst was this send every kid to camp initiative, as she called it, which I think is ballot measure 99, which is supposed to support the outdoor schools. Um, and she said it's got a huge unintended consequence because it's going to take millions of lottery money that had been being used for economic development purposes in small rural communities you know, quite often and divert it to sending kids to camp, you know? Sounds great, but it, it, it's at a cost. And then the secondary thing she wondered was, who's gonna write the curriculum and the, and the agenda for these camps when these kids go off? What are they gonna be taught? Are there even any open? Do we yeah. have to build them, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah it's just, it's one of those things where it's a great sound, you know, I, I, you know, Betsy uh, is one of my favorite legislators because she tells it like it is. <laughs> and she just got up there and was like, you know, you we have, you know, after talking about everything from sudden oak death and small ports and ocean acidification, she jumps in there and says, and there are these damn, you know, measures that want to redistribute, you know, lottery money and, and they have unintended consequences, especially this send your every kid to camp one. It sounds great, but it's terrible. <laughs> when is that one coming out? It'll be in the fall. It'll be on the November ballot. It'll be in the brochure? Yep, should be ballot measure 99. Only two passed the dreaded ballot measure 97, which Robin and I have talked about before, which used to be called IP28. Uh, which is the uh, 2.5% sales, hidden sales tax on all Oregonians. Uh, and I wouldn't even call it a sales tax in some ways because it's just a, it's a gross receipts tax. But, you know, it's a horrible, uh, you know. Um, uh, purchase products? Well, uh, the, the tax, it'll actually be at the, um, it'll be on gross receipts taxed at the corporate level. Oh. But and it's gonna be whether you made money or not. So it's gonna get passed down to the price of products. Um, and most of the corporations that are be gonna be affected do things like supply your electricity. Um, <laughs> you don't think it's gonna affect your electrical rates, uh, you you're kidding yourself. Um, but it's the it's a a, a three billion dollar a year increase in taxes that they're trying to slip through. And it's a big proposal by the public the public uh, unions, uh, employee unions. And uh, they're just, they're looking for ways to employ more public employees. So they have bigger unions. If I can jump in here for a sec, I heard on the news, I think it was yesterday morning, they were talking about the millions of dollars on both sides of the initiative that's being raised and I'm thinking, if they can come up with millions of dollars, pros and cons, why don't they funnel that money into some place that's useful instead of having another tax? Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, you know, the millions of dollars on the pro side are all coming from the employee unions. In fact, um, some very large single donations from the unions made up most of what the pro side's gotten. The uh, con side is most of, of uh, you know, private businesses and, and, and many more number of businesses contributing smaller amounts have made up the millions that they're putting together. But it, it's gonna be a huge fight. And they're making it sound all wonderful about how it's gonna fund schools and, and um, you know, 
all unicorns and lollipops and sunshine, and they don't talk about how it might actually chase some businesses out of Oregon. It's going to raise prices for low-income people, and when they get down to the nitty-gritty about who actually is going to be paying this tax through uh, either lower wages or price increases, uh, it's actually going to be borne more on low-income people than it is on the high-income people. Uh, yeah, it's it's uh, insidious tax because it's hit a hidden tax, and I absolutely hate hidden taxes. Yeah, but I don't understand. The governor came out and said it only affect major corporations, won't affect the individuals. Yeah. I love it when people talk about taxing corporations and don't think it's, it's taxing people. You know, a corporation by definition is people. You know, it's a group. You, know, you can't form a corporation without being a group of people. What? Donar brings yeah. up an interesting question. A few years back, there was a uh, company, I think it was in Bend, it was pretty much blocked. And the only reason they didn't come into the state is because of our tax laws. Isn't it driving them out? Is that why we can't get good companies to come in this state? It's difficult. And, and that is, um, you know, that's a very accurate statement in a lot of ways that, that we, we are, you know, I've been involved in recruitments before. You know, in fact, I was I met with the folks from Avago that bought um, the Hynix building. They're now called Broadcom. Um, almost a year before that was actually announced. You know, because one of the things about being an elected official is sometimes you get involved in recruiting companies. Um, and I have heard from companies when they were thinking and ones that we've lost. Some of the times we've lost them is our tax structure is part. Uh, other things is our land use system and, and the onerous um, regulations of the state. Uh, we don't come out well when we compete with, with other states. Um, Washington State's got a much better tax structure for business. Uh, they don't have the uh, statewide land use planning laws. So they get a lot of companies that we could have gotten. Um, remember the applesauce company that was going to come to Coburg and invest 25 to $100 million in the plant equipment there? Yes. Uh, they ended up in Washington, back in Washington State. <laughs> um, you know, and you even saw things after, I don't know if you remember uh, the tax increases under Measure 66 and 67. I basically. They were the ones that kind of took the top end brackets and raised them from 9% up to 11% for uh, personal income tax. Right. When that passed, um, the... Kendall Company that owns all of the auto dealerships. Yeah, they crashed. They moved their headquarters to Boise. Wasn't that also the one that's supposed to be the cure-all for funding for schools? Yeah, yeah, that was supposed to be the cure-all. <laughs> that brings up an interesting question. A lot of funding, or a lot of initiatives come across for schools, but the, the schools, uh, I, I think it's just used as a as a a badge or something, because a lot of us regular people, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll fix our schools, we'll fund it, but it never goes that way. And you know, that has a lot to do with how schools are structured and where, how they spend 81% of their cost are people. And when your people are a bunch of unions that have a lot of sway over the legislature, the rules for negotiating with them are pretty much one-sided. Uh, and that cost keeps accelerating, and so when you get new money dumped into the schools, it doesn't really buy anything because you're just making up for the increase in cost. Well, I appreciate Bill coming on and, and uh, get close to the end of the show here. So I want to kind of wrap things up uh, and just say, you know, give me a call next time uh, if you're listening. Uh, even if you're listening to this as a podcast, because I really want to have a conversation. I try and make myself available. So, just uh, next time for the Bozno's show, talk to me on Facebook or by email at talkkrbnradio.net anytime. We'll see you.
Next week, Bozno's show. This is Wayne County Commissioner Jay Bozovich saying good night from downtown Elmira, Oregon.